Welcome to the Libro Europe podcast, European Libro Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. We're very privileged to have on the podcast, MEP Vlad Gheorghe. Vlad is a member of the European Parliament from Romania with the party Uninea Salvati Romania. And I hope I got that right. And he is also a member of the Committee of Budget, Petition and Delegation to the EU Serbia Stabilization and Association Parliamentary Committee. But he comes to the podcast to talk about something that is directly involved and very passionate about, which is the work done by the European Union to recover Ukraine. And, in particular, with some bold proposals, as you're going to be hearing next. So, with no further ado, I bring you MEP Vlad Gheorghe. I'm here with MEP Vlad Gheorghe. Vlad, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very interesting. I, I think it's, uh, I didn't do a podcast for, for a couple of years now. Well, it's great to have you here and it's such a particular important topic as the one that you've been doing this amazing work regarding Ukraine. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. So what was the path that you took to get to this point that we're not talking on the podcast? I'm a lawyer and since my since college I've been uh, involved in NGO work mostly in environmental on environmental issues and then it kind of went through Uh, civil liberties issues, and then we all got together, many NGOs in Bucharest, and decided to start a party, uh, which is uh, which was called USB Union Save Bucharest, which got to be USR Union Save Romania when it grew out of Bucharest, and uh, the party of which I'm member today, and uh, which uh, I represent in the European Parliament. And uh, long story short, here I am. Let me do a follow-up on this. You're a lawyer, you were interested in civil liberties. What was the main engine for you now to particularly have Ukraine on the forefront of your concerns, of your work? has to do with a little bit of geography, or exactly as you mentioned about you know, civil liberties and empowerment of people. Tell us what was the, the, the rationale behind it. For sure, for sure, it's a combination of many reasons. But yes, like in real estate, if you, if I may say so, location, location, location. So Romania <laughs> has its biggest, uh, longest border with Ukraine. Uh, we have many Romanians living in Ukraine for centuries now. It's a complicated, long and complicated history. Like any neighbor uh, countries in uh, in Europe, everyone knows the stories. But uh, this being Uh, the, again, the longest uh, border, it's uh, of utmost importance uh, to us. And also, uh, we are very human, if I may say so. So mm -hmm. when we got to see the, the women and children coming across the border, it's something that Romanians haven't seen in two or three generations, maybe. Mm -hmm. We're not used to seeing migrants. Uh, that was a shock for everyone, including for me. So, yeah, it's, uh, let's say, strategic, it's human to, to get involved. And now we just want to help these people defeat Putin and live uh, in peace inside the Euro European Union. So these are my incentives. Uh, these are, let's say, egoistic incentives, but also human incentives. Take it, take it as you want. Let me just say 
on something that you said that was really interesting and that you mentioned that Romanian people do have that experience of see the despair and having to help each other. But you're, you're a young man, actually, for our listeners. Uh, Vlad is one of the young guns, promising young guns inside our uh, liberal family. Then for you, history played a role or you just were capable of saying, all right, this is a moment uh, that it's unique in history, in Romanian history, in European history, in Ukraine history. So tell us a little bit how that also affected you. Well, you feel reality and you understand history better when you when you feel your reality. Uh, yeah, we saw it, my generation saw it in the history books, but in the movies and whatever. But mm -hmm. again, nothing beats reality. When you see the, the tragedy and when you see the people's, uh, the look in people's eyes, uh, that's when, uh, then when, that's when it starts to hit you. So uh, that's the biggest incentive. It doesn't matter if you're old, young, I don't know, teenager or 85 years old. I think if you're human, you're going to click with that and just react. Uh, there are many reactions in different people. I saw that. My reaction was to help. My reaction was that we need to do something, and I helped uh, on the ground. I organized the volunteers. Uh, I organized a huge group that got to be very successful in which volunteers helped uh, the Ukrainians. But I also did stuff that uh, I'm supposed to do as an MEP, and uh, I think you know about that, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to get into it. Just one last Question then, how are things in the field then in Romania? You just said that you have that experience of being in the ground. We're in the beginning of September 2022. So how are, th how are things back in your own country? So now we have around 80,000, 80, between 80 and 85,000 Ukrainian refugees. These are the mid-term, as we call them, mid-term to long-term refugees. These mm -hmm. are the refugees who have been staying in Romania for over three or four months. So now the challenge is to get the, the children to schools, which is which is something that I'm trying to do. It's not easy because they don't speak the language. Uh, the school system is very different, but we're doing it uh, mostly in big cities. But now we're trying to do them to do it in uh, smaller cities also. And uh, so these are the numbers. These are the things. And uh, the Romanian people have been very helpful, putting bet on the fact that we're going to get tired to help. Nope, no one gets tired <laughs> to help. Newsflash. In Romania, and I believe in the whole of Europe, we're not tired to help the Ukrainians. Well, my personal thanks to you and to the Romanian people for being on the front lines of this very important uh, mission. Now let's talk about you, because you also have been on the front lines and doing a very, very important work inside the European Union, inside the European Parliament. You, for example, are one of the more vocal proponents of establishing what can be considered a Marshall Fund type of package for Ukraine, actually the Ukraine Solidarity Trust Fund. And this has uh, his mechanics. I'm going to go into those ones pretty soon. Where are we on that? So first of all, the philosophy on that is very simple. So we need, we need a plan to recover Ukraine because, again, well, I think everyone is... Uh, Uh, certain about the fact that they are uh, European people and they want to become eventually, eventually a member of a uh, full member of the European Union. And we need to help them recover after the war. That means business for everyone. That means uh, social responsibility, all the good things. And also we know for a fact that Putin will 
lose the war. So it's just a matter of time. So we need mm -hmm. to be prepared for that because we have uh, 750 billion losses to compensate. And I'm talking about the losses in uh, civil infrastructure in Ukraine. And that's what we need to think about. And of course, we need a Marshall Plan. It's, it's what we did after the Second World War. It's what we did after the pandemic, because the recovery fund is actually a Marshall Plan. And now this is a huge event. It's a, it's, it's a huge war in Europe. So we'll need everyone will need to recover after that. And so we need to use the solution that worked. We don't need to invent the wheel. If it worked, let's do it again. And where to start better than with the aggressor's money? Because I'm a lawyer and in my profession, there is a principle who uh, the, the one that makes a mistake, that's the one who needs to pay. So uh, th this is why I want to start uh, with the, the Russian money, because if they are into destroying stuff, they need to be able to pay for it first, of course, because it's logical. We have their assets in the European Union. And second, because they need to feel it. They need to feel the consequences of their action. And to come back to your question, just quick to come back to your question, uh, what are we doing now? So, uh, news. We have uh, a pilot project now that's going to be funded by the by the Commission. We won, uh, myself and my and some of my MEP colleagues, we want this pilot project in order to have, let's say, a test, let to see how we can manage mm -hmm. to seize and confiscate and use Russian assets. And if we manage to get the legal, because it's about legal solutions here, everything turns around the legal ways. If we manage, if we are going to have a successful project, and I'm sure we're going to do that, that could be scaled up as part of the solution for the recovery plan for Ukraine. We will be following that very closely. That's that pilot project that is going to be implemented now. But I was, I, I just said it a minute ago that we were going to talk a little bit also about the mechanics. On this Ukraine Solidarity Trust Fund, money would come not only from the European Union itself, and you just mentioned that the European Commission is helping on that, but also member states and donor contributions. Can you get a little bit into that? Well, first of all, again, I'm thinking that the first and biggest contribution I want to be the, the Russian assets. So that's where we need to start. Because Europe so far has helped Ukraine. And we're constantly doing that. And even this plenary, we're going to vote. I'm sure it's going to be a successful vote on a, another batch of uh, European uh, support, European solidarity for Ukraine. And uh, we've been doing that for months. Maybe we could have done more. That, with that, I agree. But we've been helping Ukraine for months. And again, I think it's time for us to use the assets that we have seized uh, from, from the Russians. But other than that, we have the very good examples of cities uh, across Europe adopting uh, cities or parts of cities uh, to reconstruct after the war is over. So we have this. This was totally voluntary. So cities just got together and uh, they partnered with Kiev, with Odessa, with Mykolaiv uh, to, to save landmark or just to, to reconstruct maybe schools, maybe hospitals, cities on their own. And if cities can organize themselves, uh, themselves and do this, 
I don't see why us, the European Union, the mighty European Union, plus the 27 member states, could not organize to do such a thing. So it's like a country-to-country teledon, if you want to. So I think it could be an auction, just auctioning for help. What they're actually doing now, but for military help and, and so on and so forth. And you just mentioned a minute ago, there's a precedent for this. Next Generation EU was exactly that kind of fund, as you correctly so, to recover us from the pandemic. And this was a shared effort. So we have everything that we need to do, that shared effort also for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Now I want to continue the conversation about the Russian assets, because this is something that I'm following. I'm following very closely your work and, and what you write and what you say about this. Apart from all the legalese, which exists, and you are a lawyer, so we're in good hands. The other thing is that it's just a right moral choice to do. Um, they are barbarically destroying things, and, and, and that's, let's not even go into killing people in the way that they do, civilians. But my question to you then is, Vlad, do you feel like there's a critical mass to reach that level of support where it's comfortable for all the stakeholders in the European Union to say, yes, this is something that we should do? Yes, yes, definitely, yes. It wasn't like this uh, from the start. I need to mention that. So I had this idea very early on. I proposed this idea very early on, and it didn't have the support that it has today. Mm. It grew. It grew like uh, many other issues regarding Ukraine. Mm, if I may say so, European, the European Union... Uh, didn't have all the full courage from the start, but then we grew into courage. And uh, when I say courage, I'm, I mean also about the uh, weapons help, about the funds help, and of course about ideas like this. So now, yes, it has the support. But what I need to mention is that the way we should, and I think we will do this, is not by just deciding uh, to a vote, uh, which boat to confiscate, which uh, bank account to seize and stuff like that. No, the European Union is based on the rule of law. And we will have uh, laws and rules to abide by, by everyone, including us. And the Russian owners will have the right to go into court and to try to uh, up to oppose that decision. So this is how we're going to do it. Never, never, hopefully, it will not ever become to be a matter of decision-making by a couple of guys and yeah. girls somewhere in Brussels or in Strasbourg or whatever. No, it's going to be again by the book, according to rules. Yes, we need to have lawyers. That's it. No <laughs> one loves lawyers. Oh, well, no, we no, them. no. That's not true. That's not true. Um, but uh, again, yes, there will not be just a decision somewhere. We will not behave like the Russians, yes. never, even if it's about the Russians. So everyone has, has the right in court and everyone has the right to defend themselves and they will have that even if we're talking about confiscating assets. Yes, that's such a great point because otherwise we lose all legitimacy. Of, of having that m higher moral ground. I don't have a lot of time with the MEP, unfortunately, but 
I would love love to have you back on the podcast. But there is something that we have to go on to because I know that this is important for you, which is the prosecution of war crimes. This is a little heavy to, to talk. What is your vision on this then? What, what, what can we do? What can you do? Well, first of all, I need to tell you, like a disclosure agreement before everything, that I've been to Bucha. Oh. So I've been to Kiev in April. I've, I've been to Kiev, I think, three or four days after the Russians re- withdrew. And we've been to Bucha exactly the time they getting the victims out of the common burial grounds. So I saw mm-hmm. that. I've, I, I really lived through that. I don't want to share any other details because I don't want anyone with, uh, witnessing that. But we need to know about it. We never need to forget about it. And be, in order to make it uh, to stop from happening, uh, if, uh, happening again. And one of those ways in which we ensure that it's not going to happen again It's uh, taking the people responsible into court and punishing them. Because, again, we are uh, abiding by the rule of law and uh, everyone gets their day in court, but we need to get those people there. And this is a very important process. This is why it's important for me. It would have been very important for anyone who, uh, who went to Bucha, for sure. And uh, we have the means to do it. Now we've extended Eurojustice, uh, Eurojust mandate in order to prosecute, to help prosecute those Mm -hmm. uh, war crimes. So European Union is uh, making the right steps into that. And I'm pretty much certain that we will have some war criminals sooner or later. I think the, the small fish sooner. I think the bigger fish later. But history has showed us since the Nazis through uh, the war in Bosnia, everyone will be punished sometime. The only question is when, not if. Very true, Vlad. And again, all of us Europeans would love and want to see that happen. But this is Russia we're talking about. And I, I, I imagine that you are not happy just have trials in absentia. And you just said that time will take care of it and sooner or later we'll have those people responding to justice. But we know how Russia works and we know it's very hard to have extradition treaties or have those people outside of uh, their home country. So are you waiting for like a, a regime change because I don't see Putin changing his mind anytime soon. So is there a way to make this thing happen? Yeah, of course. I um, I realize the fact that today things are not going to change overnight. Yes, I think that Putin needs to go. I'm sure of the fact that Putin will uh, go sometime. I think mm-hmm. that the people around him are already starting to think really, really, really serious about that. Maybe uh, doing something about it also. What I want to tell you is that if we would have had this conversation, let's say in March or in April, and I would have told you that uh, the Ukrainians are going to push the Russians uh, tens and tens of kilometers back into Russia, and then they will uh, close the border with Russia by themselves, like in a, let's say, in a symbolic way, 
from and they that they are going to get back over 3000 square kilometers in 3 or 5 days by attacking the russians you would have told me come on are you what are you talking about so things that may be impossible today this is the idea tomorrow are going to become reality and yes a regime change is needed but it's not impossible we have the means to facilitate the getting of the the criminals to justice to european justice and those are the sanctions i don't think that we will lift ever the sanctions against russia even mm-hmm. if there is a regime change if they don't uh, send the criminals to prosecution. I think that's, that needs to be the utmost uh, condition to lift the sanctions, again, even after uh, a regime change. And I think that this is the way to get the criminals in front of justice. I'm sure that that's going to happen. Uh, but again, the question is when, not tomorrow, but think of our conversation in April, how would that look like. So I don't think it's going to be 20 or 30 years. Justice moves slowly, but it moves steadily. So one day we'll have those people answering for their barbaric actions. As we're running out of time, and again, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Let's hope that you can come back and we can continue some of the topics. But now I'm going to ask you, please, to direct our listeners uh, that now listen to you and they feel even more energized what they can do to help Ukraine cause uh, more than we are just have been doing, but we can do even we can do always a little more. Uh, first of all, they need to keep being good people. So mm. if you are if you keep being good people, uh, good things will come, and then you can of course. Uh, Talk to your uh, to your local elected people to support the cause. Try to volunteer if you have the time to do it. As as short as you can do it, do it a, a bit by bit. We do great things. But first, remember to be good people, decent people, because that helps a lot. Every time, if you are that, every time you need you meet people, someone in need, you will help them. It doesn't need to be a million euros. It, it can be an apple or a bread or a hello, welcome, how are you? Trust me, those words can mean the difference for someone in need. So this is my, my only message. Wonderful. See, listeners, this is why we have such wonderful people as MEPs that have simple messages like this, but so impactful. Now, please tell me, how can people follow your work online? So you can search for me, Vlad Gheorghe Map, on basically all the social media, uh, and then click to follow to see we have automatic translations, we have stuff in English, stuff in Romanian, but just enter and try to, to see it. Look for my face, that's the best way to do it, because <laughs> my name may not be that easy for you if you're not Romanian. Search for Vlad, MEP, and you will find uh, you will find my face for sure. And follow me if you're interested. If not, of course, then I'm not doing my job properly. Well, I'm going to put all the links to direct people exactly to find not only your face, but your work. I've been talking with MEP Vlad Gheorghe. Uh, Vlad, you're doing a fantastic job. Please keep doing that for all of us Europeans. And thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, too. Thank you for having me. 
I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.